Our key, key speaker will be Michael Davis, and he will be opening our seminar today by discussing, discussing balance sheet management and the importance of this in the banking industry, a topic in which he is an expert since he was appointed as Group Executive of Balance Sheet Management in Nedbank in 2015. Before I welcome him to the stage, I just want to tell you a brief bit about him. Michael is a chartered accountant with a postgraduate diploma in accounting, a BCom honours, and completed the Advanced Management Programme at INSEAD University in France. He was appointed a Group Executive of Balance Sheet Management and to the Group Exco at Nedbank in January 2015. This was after he previously held the position of Executive Head of Group Assets, Liability and Capital Management. He has made a considerable contribution to enhancing the group's capital management, liquidity risk management and interest, rate, interest risk management. Please ma'am welcome Michael to the stage. Thanks Daniela. Jeez, that was a long bio. So morning everyone. Uh, I've been asked to speak this morning on essentially the role of banking and specifically balance sheet management and that's obviously a portfolio that I run at Nedbank. Something I've done for a long time uh, pre and post my appointment to Group uh, Exco uh, and it's something that uh, I certainly enjoy doing and uh, hopefully through this presentation you'll see it's, it's a reasonably in interesting role that, uh, that certainly stimulates me and my team. Alright, with regards to this particular topic, what I'd first like to do is just, just put out an example because I'm going to use and refer to the example through the presentation and I think it makes it a lot easier to understand uh, essentially the role of the bank and secondly the interest rate, uh, liquidity risk and capital risks that we currently run for the organisation. So if you'll bear with me, it's a, a simple example but at the end of the day banking is quite simple. It's essentially a commercial bank's essentially about taking deposits on one side and essentially extending credit or lending on the other side together with a bunch of other financial services. So I think it's worth putting a simple example up because as I say, we'll refer, refer to it through the, through the presentation. All right, so we've got, uh, we've got uh, in, in this case, Steve, who basically takes a loan to support a vehicle uh, finance deal. Uh, basically, he's financing his vehicle. He's taken 450,000, it's a five-year term and uh, we extend the, the credit at prime plus two. We then take deposits to support that particular uh, transaction through two individuals, in this case Jenny and Becky. Uh, we take uh, from Jenny essentially a 350,000 one month deposit where we service that at 725 and essentially we take uh, 100,000 as a five year fixed deposit from uh, essentially uh, Becky, which we service at 8%. So we've got a five-year fixed deposit and we've got a one-month fixed deposit supporting a 450,000 rand VAF or vehicle finance transaction. You can already see that uh, although the balance sheet is matched, uh, you can see that uh, essentially the, the rate differential, there's a rate differential across both the deposits and the deposit to asset side of the balance sheet. And secondly, you can see there's a delta or, or difference in terms of the tenor. Alright, so essentially, and, and you can see what I refer to as the bank is bringing together through the two, two sides of the balance sheet, they're bringing together depositors and borrowers uh, in a matched, uh, a matched balance sheet position. In terms of a, the importance of a bank, I mean, at the end of the day, what a bank does is it transforms short-dated liquidity into essentially long-dated lending. That's what a bank does. If you think about... Uh, um, a depositor or someone who wants to place money with the organization, typically they're looking to place money but with the option of access. So those of us who place money through a deposit, 
We place money with the organization, but we want access to that money. So typically we'll put money with an organization in the short to medium term. On the opposing side of the balance sheet, those who borrow money will essentially borrow money over as long a tenor as possible in order to afford to buy a house for multiple millions of rands. So the two, the two opposing sides of the balance sheet, there's a very different behavior in terms of one, someone who wants to borrow money versus someone who wants to place money with the bank. And that's why we talk about the fact that the bank is transforming short-dated liquidity into long-dated lending. And that's what a commercial bank does. It brings together those who are long cash and those who are short cash uh, and brings them together on a tenor that matches the objectives of the two sides of the balance sheet. Obviously, commercial banks, banks play a very important role in not only financial intermediation, uh, but essentially also in terms of creating economic growth, wealth creation, and employment opportunities. Uh, so I think banks play a very important role uh, in, again, economic growth. Um, and again, that relationship between the two opposing sides of, of, of the balance sheets. Obviously, all debt and all loans service or receive interest. So you've got the opposing flow of interest on, on the two sides of the balance sheet. If you borrow money, you pay interest. Obviously, if you place cash with the organization, you receive interest. Um, so again, opposing, the, the opposing direction. All right, if we jump into essentially that transaction from deposit taking versus lending, essentially we've got, uh, as indicated, banks accept deposits or take deposits from corporates, individuals, institutions. Typically, we use money markets and capital markets to diversify our funding base and create tenor. Typically, the typical products that we issue into market are typically current accounts, savings accounts, cash management deposits, fixed deposits, negotiable certificates of deposits, etc. So we use a multitude of products to support uh, our different, uh, different requirements of our different clients. Um, and as indi indicated, we'll typically use the money markets or capital markets to create funding tenor or duration and or the foreign markets to create either a funding diversification into the RAND denominated book or typically to raise foreign cash to support foreign denominated lending. On the opposing side of the balance sheet with regards to borrowers, typically we lend money to individuals, businesses, governments, etc. Um, again, looking at the type of products familiar to all of us, home loans, commercial mortgage bonds, VAF or vehicle finance, credit cards, typical products that we typically structure on the lending side of the business. And again, I think what's very important with regards to the slide is the reference to one and three, and I referred to it earlier. Typically, borrowers want access to cash, so they place money short to medium term, which we could typically look out to a year. So there's a lot of appetite to place money in the short end, which I would suggest is overnight, one month out to three. There's some appetite to go into six months, nine months, 12 months, and there's little appetite for depositors to go beyond, unless they're institutional investors, beyond the one-year point. So a lot of the money of the organization is raised out to one year, on the opposing side of the balance sheet, for all of us who borrow money to finance cars or borrow money to finance uh, homes, you'll know that you've either structured your deal as a five-year VAF deal, so you're financing your car over five years, or uh, in terms of a home, you're financing it over 20 years, again, based on affordability. So immediately you can see 
short-dated cash transformed into long-dated liquidity uh, in terms of supporting the other side of the balance sheet. In terms of the flow, flow of interest, obviously it's the posing direction. I think what's very important about this particular slide is that in terms of our assets, a large part of banks in, in South Africa, a large part of the bank's balance sheet prices to prime. So proportionally, more of our balance sheet prices to prime than anything else. Obviously, prime is an administered rate in that it tracks the repo rate, uh, but effectively it's a floating rate. We do, however, raise some money at call. We raise a chunk of money at Java, or rather borrow, we, we lend a chunk of money at Java, typically into the corporate or commercial space. And then to the extent that we made fixed rate advances, we use derivatives as a very thick or liquid Java link market in South Africa that we use to hedge or manage, manage this risk. So essentially translating fixed rate lending into essentially Java link lending. But that's typically how the money outside of our businesses prices. On the opposing side, in terms of bank liabilities, we raise a reasonable amount of cash link to, to call. We raise a large amount of money, particularly from the institutions or corporates linked to Java. We raise again all of our tenor, or most of our tenor comes from typically that three to 12 month, out to three years, out to five year space, which again, we use Java link derivatives to bring that risk back into the short end. So we have a large chunk of Java linked funding. Uh, through either fixed rates, risk managed back to Java, or straight term, term deposits linked to Java, and then there are certain other rates. And then finally, we again fund the organization through something called free funding. Given a bank's balance sheet, you've got assets on one side, debt on the other. In terms of the debt, it's also supported essentially with uh, capital, as well as certain current accounts that we service uh, at no interest. And that typically we refer to free funding because it doesn't come with an associated interest rate uh, and it does create a lot of the interest rate risk that I'll speak to just now. But you can see on the previous slides, there's definitely liquidity or cash flow mismatches between both sides of the balance sheet. And you can see on this slide, there's definitely reprice risk on both sides of the balance sheet. All right, so that covers then the first two points on the slide in terms of what we refer to as liquidity risk and what we refer to as banking book interest rate risk. And those two risk types are managed in our organization by the balance sheet management function, uh, which is the portfolio I represent. The third risk type that we, we manage is something called capital risk. And essentially what that is, is that to the extent that you create risk or take risk in an organization, you expose the organization to something called expected loss. So by way of example, if you lend money to, in this case, Steve, and he defaults or doesn't pay you back, he's exposed us to a form of loss. Some of that loss we would measure as expected loss, and for that we would hold uh, credit provisions in the form of both specific and portfolio provisions. But this element, in the, which is in the tail of the distribution called unexpected loss, is difficult to measure, uh, and as a result, you can't provide for it or it's not represented in mark-to-market -market or fair value positions. And for that, the regulations tell you as an organization, as a bank, you've got to hold capital. So capital is there to absorb this concept of unexpected loss. Um, and the risk management of these two risk types, as indicated, is run in our organization by this particular team. If we then go in and unpack each individual risk, and again, I'm going to refer to that example because I think it makes it easier to tangibilize these three risk types. So interest rate risk in the banking book is essentially the fact that the, 
The balance sheet does not reprice the same, not necessarily by tenor, nor to the same base rates, or not at all, if interest rates change. Uh, and if you think about it before diving into the risk, if more of your balance sheet prices on the asset side for interest rate changes, or the assets of the organization price quicker than the liabilities of the organization with a pre or, pre or post risk management, you will make more money in an upward rate cycle and less money in a downward rate cycle. So just think about that. If your assets price quicker, reprice quicker, and rates go up, you, get, you earn money on your assets. So as a result of rates going up, you'll earn higher margins because the asset profile of the organization reprices quicker than the deposit profile or vice versa. So that's what interest rate risk is. If you start on the top left-hand side, and again, it's, all it is is a schematic that represents the repricing profile of the balance sheet. So remember the balance sheet's got a whole bunch of assets and a whole bunch of deposits, a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't necessarily reprice, but moving from T0, being the left-hand side, across the time series, it is a pictorial representation of your assets and liabilities. Assets would be above the line, liabilities would be below the line, but through time, if you walk through from left to right, that's how our balance sheet reprices pre-risk management. So you can see there's a large bar in the first bucket, which would be in your overnight or one-month space. And really that talks to the quantum of prime-linked business that we write across the South African marketplace. If you think about most of your, uh, your VAF deals, your commercial property finance deals, your residential mortgage-backed deals, they're all priced to prime those of you who have those, those contracts. So you'll see typically banks in South Africa, all banks in South Africa, have a large part of the asset profile that reprice from T0. And as you walk through the repricing curve, pre-risk management, you'll find your liability start to catch up, typically out to a year. And in the longer space being five years, 10 years and, and greater, you've typically got essentially the asset profile of the organization. I spoke to earlier the fact that typically those who borrow money want it over a longer tenor, and to the extent they write, we write fixed rate assets to them, they reprice out beyond a year. And then you've got a chunk of non-rate sensitive cash, uh, which I referred to earlier as free funding, that then never reprices. So from left to right, pectorally, the reprice gap is a pectoral representation of how quickly the balance sheet reprices for interest rate changes. So you can see South African banks, and this is Nedbank's profile, if rates go up, we make more money in margin. Why? Because we've got a big chunk of our asset book that reprices higher for higher interest rates. Then deposits start to catch up over time, and then your fixed rate assets start to, 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 to reprice over time or on maturity. And then there's a chunk of free funding, which essentially is represented by capital, which is deployed into the short end of the curve that never reprices. And that's why South African banks all make money, make more money in an upward rate cycle from, an, from a NIM perspective versus in a downward rate cycle. So margins squeeze in a downward rate cycle because there's free funding and pri large prime link book. How do we manage that particular position? Because we would prefer to be in this position. We would prefer our balance sheet to reprice roughly over the same period of time. So we manage that through largely JABAR-linked derivatives. So what we do is we essentially go and we take out those, those bars by doing opposing derivative positions. All a der derivative is is essentially it allows you to receive or pay fixed 
and essentially the opposing leg of the derivative is linked to Java. So it's a notional contract whereby if I agree to essentially receive fixed, pay Java over five years, I will essentially enter into a contracted market in which I will receive fixed for five years. My floating leg will be linked to Java, and every 91 days that Java leg will reprice based on where Java is trading in market. So it allows you to take fixed interest rate risk out of the long end of the curve and bring it back to reprice in the short end being the, the, the three-month bucket. So you can see post-derivatives or post-risk management, we've managed to take all the risk out and bring it into the short end. And as a result, with the exception of the free funding invested in the short end, we've essentially positioned the balance sheet to reprice somewhere in the next three months. If rates go up or down, the full balance sheet, with the exception of the free funding, will reprice somewhere between 1 and 91 days. And that's what the derivatives or risk management's allowed us to do in terms of risk managing those bars, which represent chunks of deposits or chunks of fixed rate assets that will only reprice in three months, one year, five years, or greater than 10 years, we've positioned or brought that all into reprice somewhere in the three-month bucket. So somewhere in 91 days, the bulk of the balance sheet, with the exception of the free funding reprices. And that's how we risk manage interest rate risk such that we're not exposed to whether rates go up or down. Now you can see clearly if rates go up or down, the entire balance sheet's going to reprice in the three-month bucket. So that's how we manage this particular risk type, largely through job link swaps or forward rate agreements. Uh, we, do, we do use, before we do that particular profile, we do use on-balance sheet hedges, where if we've got a piece of three-year fixed rate receive fixed risk and three-year pay fixed risk, we'll obviously align those two and use the on-balance sheet natural hedge that that creates. But post that positioning, we use the derivative market to manage this particular risk type. This is then a pictorial representation going back to our example, and hopefully it's, 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 not, it's not unclear, but essentially you've got, again, Steve, Jenny, and Becky in terms of Steve borrowed 450,000. You had Jenny who placed 350 in the one-month area. You had Becky who placed uh, essentially 100,000 in the five-year area. And essentially, before risk management, that represents in the top middle graph, it represents the 450 being an asset. We've lent Steve money. It, you can see it's in the one-month bucket because it's linked to Prime, and if Prime moves, it'll, it'll reprice essentially in the one-month bucket. You can see Jenny gave us the first maroon bar. She gave us a one-month fixed deposit, so that will reprice after one month, so it sits in the one-month bucket. And you've got the five-year piece of risk being the, the, uh, the five-year fixed deposit placed by Becky, uh, which essentially is, is set to reprice only after five years' time. So essentially, if rates move tomorrow, one month rates will reset, prime will reset, the five-year rate will reset, but we've committed to pay him a fixed rate on date of transaction for the next five years, so his piece of, his piece of risk won't reprice. We will pay him 8% for the next five years. So if rates move, we still got to pay him 8% for the next five years. So if rates have come down, we've still committed, committed to pay him 8% uh, of the next five years. We will squeeze uh, essentially on that piece of risk committed for the next five years. The net position of all of that is then simply reflected in the bar chart below that, where you've essentially got a piece of one-year risk that's set to reprice in a month's time versus a piece of five-year risk, which is set to reprice after five years, and you're sitting with that interest rate risk mismatch uh, across your balance sheet, which positions you to margin squeeze or margin opening, depending on rates due. 
post-risk management, if you just jump across to the following, what we've done there is we've taken out a five-year uh, fixed rate receive fixed derivative. Derivative's always got two legs, so we've committed to receive fixed for five years, pay Java, and you can see very clearly then we've got a pay fixed piece of risk to Becky. We've done a re receive fixed derivative, pay Java. It's taken that chunk of risk and essentially moved it into the three-month bucket. Better aligning, essentially, the repricing profile of these three transactions. So that's a simple example, using the example to demonstrate how we would risk manage a position uh, in terms of managing interest rate risk in the banking book. So I'm going to pause there for a second and ask before moving on to funding and liquidity risk if there are any questions from a banking book interest rate risk perspective. No questions. You guys get, everyone understand, everyone comfortable with that? Then I'm going to go with my examples, done the job. But uh, feel free to ask, an ask, ask questions afterwards or again during the, next, uh, during the next section. But moving then on to funding and liquidity risk. Uh, and it's, again, it's a sim similar concept, like this concept of repricing mismatches we discussed in the previous risk discipline. This is about cash flow mismatches. And again, it goes back to where we opened, or we can use the example. If you've got someone who's borrowing money for five years, and you as a bank are funding that with a piece of one month funding and a piece of five year funding, the cash flow profile of the two sides of the balance sheet is very different. And the role of a bank is to manage that cash flow mismatching, uh, given the fact that we've got multiple assets and multiple deposits that, uh, on which the cash flows are very different. So again, from a cash flow perspective and this transformation role, and again, think of that middle schematic as simply similar to the repricing bar charts we looked at. All this is, is again, is a pictorial representation of the cash flows of the liabilities of the organization versus the assets of the organization. So from T0 to Tn, from a deposit perspective, I mentioned the fact that most of our cash is raised somewhere in the short to medium term. So call it call out to the one-year space. Most of our lending as an organization is in the long end of the curve, a la home loans, vehicle finance, etc. So you've got this very distinct cash flow mismatch on all banks globally. That's exactly what everyone's cash flow profile looks like because of, again, the propensity for depositors to put money with the organization. You know, if I'm long cash, I'll give you the cash, but I might need it to do something either to finance my business or to go buy a house or to... So I'll give it to you, bank, but I want it somewhere in the short end that it matures, that you give it back to me either overnight, one month, maybe six months, maybe I'll give it to you for a year, but I want access to that money. On the other side of the balance sheet being the large green bar, if I'm borrowing money, I can't afford to buy a house for two million rand and pay it back over five years. The monthly installment is just too high for me. So give it to me over 20 years, it makes the affordability of the home a lot more uh, palatable. And as a result, the bank gives me the money for 20 years to finance my home, and I'll pay it back over the next 20 years. So again, that, that profile from a liquidity mismatching perspective is exactly the same globally across banks because of that transformation role that we play in the economy. How do we manage liquidity risk? Essentially, we've got a very complicated risk management framework. What does it mean? It really means that Start with measuring a contractual cash flow profile where we've just been. Derive off the back of that a business as usual or behavioral overlay. 
And what I mean by behavioral overlay, so we started contractually with a previous schematic, very long transformation of liquidity. But if you think of what happens in the example, if I've lent someone 20 years, money for 20 years to finance their home loan, typically what happens? Do they really live in the house for 20 years? They typically upgrade, downgrade, emigrate, move suburbs somewhere within the 20-year period. So typically you find, you know, and, it, and it, 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 it's, it's dependent on the macro, but let's say typically it's seven years. Typically, although you lend contractually someone, uh, you know, 20-year 20, 20 money to, to finance a home, they typically pay it back to you over seven years. Why? Because they change suburbs, upgrade, downgrade, emigrate, etc. I mean, most of us have probably lived in one or two homes already. So same with, same with, with regards to financing a, a, a vehicle deal or transaction. Typically, you lend the guy money for five years. What does he do? Three years later, he sells the car. He again changes the car, etc. So there's a contractual cash flow profile, and then there's a behavioral contractual, or contractual or rather behavioral profile. And then there's a stressed mismatch, where again, under duress or stress, the behavioral um, cash flow profile changes significantly as well. So we measure that as a starting point, taking the entire bank's balance sheet into, the, into account. Under stress mismatches, we run multiple stress tests. We hold things like high-quality liquid asset buffers. To, to, so to support unexpected cash outflows, we hold or we take some of the deposits and we put it into very liquid portfolios. And we typically look, put it into either cash, government bonds, treasury bills, etc., which we can liquidate very quickly to support a stressed cash outflow or run on the organization. So that's what the framework does. You, that then is supported with appropriate contingency planning, recovery plans, uh, appropriate uh, essentially processes like ICAPs, et cetera. But at the end of the day, it's about managing yourself from a contractual to business as usual to stress, supported by an appropriate liquidity profile, appropriate tenor, appropriate diversification in terms of funding sources, and pools of high-quality liquid assets that can support unusual cash outflows under duress. So that's the framework. At the end of the day, banks worldwide manage liquidity mismatches through their reputation. As soon as an organization has got a problem with its reputation, because of that, again, that contractual mismatch position, which is the which is the worst case scenario from a cash outflow perspective, if you damage the organization's reputation, whether it be perception or real, and people are uncomfortable to place money with the organization or they withdraw current deposits from the organization, that's when a bank has a run, a run on deposits. And because of that mismatching, regardless of how big your pools of high quality liquid, liquid assets are, eventually the short dated run on the deposits outweighs what you can get back from those individuals to whom you've lent money. Why? Because again, you've lent money in the long end and you've taken money in the short end. So if depositors start to withdraw cash, you don't have sufficient cash eventually to keep up with the cash outflow. And that's when you hear about curatorship, etc., etc., or triggering of resolution or recovery plans, uh, etc. So the reputation of the organization, this concept of trust is very important in managing the liquidity mismatches across the organization. Again, in our example, Steve, Jenny, and Becky, in terms of uh, the cash flow profiles in the top, that's the contractual cash flow of all three pieces of that example. So on the green bars, you've got uh, Steve paying you back over five years, uh, essentially the money you lent him to finance his vehicle. 
In the bottom end, you've got the contractual profile of what you owe in terms of the 350 that Jenny gave you in the short end and the 100,000 that Becky gave you in the long end. We then model that from a behavioral perspective when we run the organization on a business as usual or behavioral uh, cash flow profile. And as indicated in my example earlier, behaviorally on the asset side, typically you find the cash flows come in. In my example, reference to if someone borrows five year cash to finance his vehicle, three years later he sells the car, repays his loan, and rather finances a new vehicle. So you see the cash on a behavioral basis comes in on the schematic. From a funding perspective, typically what, what happens to Jenny's one month deposit is she rolls it every month. She's only got a contraction with the organization for one month, but at the end of the month she's got no use for the cash, so she rolls it for another month. And typically you find therefore the behavioral tenor of your funding base is longer than the contractual tenor. So you end up with a behavioral profile that looks a lot more matched, uh, and that's how we run the organization. And then under duress or stress, you can see the maroon bars come back at you, and that's because, again, under duress, people are withdrawing their cash quicker than either contractually or essentially behaviorally uh, they, 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 they have to. So that's how we run the organization, and just in terms of the simple example, I think it demonstrates very clearly you know, this sort of profile in terms of what happens from a contractual versus behavioral basis. And the only way a bank can run the, the, the cash flow mismatches is on a behavioral basis. We could never run the business on that basis contractually because it means you'd need to raise a lot more matched funding and there isn't that quantum of matched funding in terms of you know people out there who are prepared to give you 20-year cash so you can go and do a 20-year home loan. We've got to run the short end uh, in terms of financing the long-dated lending. All right, FTP or funds transfer pricing and margin. Margin analytics is something we also look after in my particular team. Typically, it does sit in other organizations in the group finance function, but in our space, it sits in our team. Uh, funds transfer pricing, and again, I, just tell me if it's, it, it, it gets too messy, but FTP is essentially what I've just described on the outer ends of our business. So we've spoken to the example of Steve, Becky, and Jenny. It speaks to the external client legs. All that funds transfer pricing does is it mirrors what I've just described, but inside the organization, such that internally we can strip out the liquidity risk or mismatches and the interest rate risk or mismatches I've just spoken to into my team. So effectively what FTP does, if you just take that principle away with you, it essentially mirrors the external legs and pulls the risk into my team so we can then manage the risk centrally and we can secure credit spread in our lending businesses and funding spread in our deposit taking businesses because that's what they're responsible for. They're not responsible for running the mismatch of the organization or the repricing mismatches of the organization. We are. And the principle of that is that it's not one side that's created either of the two risks we've just discussed. It's a combination of the two sides of the balance sheet. So it's not the fact that someone lent Steve money for five years, and it's not the fact that the money in part of our business could only raise money in the one-month bucket and a piece in the five-year bucket. It's a function of the two sides of the balance sheet that creates the mismatches. So it's not their responsibility, business unit A, and it's not their responsibility, business unit B, to manage the associated mismatch. It's our responsibility because it's the two sides 
that create the risk. So that's what FTP is. Uh, essentially, in, by way of, again, example, so essentially we've got, in the case of borrowers, obviously interest essentially is, is essentially charged to those who borrow money from us, being C. On the opposing side of the balance sheet, essentially where we've borrowed money, we pay depositors interest from a bank perspective. So the margin of the organization before any form of risk management is the difference between what we pay and what we receipt in terms of the two sides of the balance sheet. However, because of the different mismatches on both liquidity and interest rate risk in the center, or rather between the two which culminates in the center, we essentially, what we do is we act as a bank inside the bank. And in this example, we essentially therefore charge those who have lent money to client. So we do a notional, but not a physical, a notional lend to a money out business. And on the opposing side of the balance sheet, we acquire notionally the funding that they've raised from market. So essentially what we do in the center, any money in business, in other words, deposit taking part of our business, we buy those deposits from them. And anyone who's used cash of the organization to lend to someone to finance a house or a car, we notionally lend them money. But in doing so, we can do so on a matched, effectively a matched maturity funds transfer pricing basis. We can match the repricing behavior of the loan and the repricing behavior of the deposit and we can match the cash flow profile of the loan and the cash flow profile of the deposit notionally thereby securing credit spread in this business and essentially funding spread in that business but stripping the mismatch mismatches into the center so by notionally replicating the opposing side of the trade we've created the other side of that which has pulled the risk into the center and that's what FTP does as a very important part of, uh, of, uh, of performance measurement. And it's a very important part of risk management. If you don't do it, then you leave the interest rate risk and the liquidity risk I've just spoken to in the frontline businesses. Where if rates start to go up or down, their margins start to go up or down depending on directionally which way it's going, uh, for which they have no tools to risk manage those positions. So FTP is a very important part of locking in credit spread and funding spread, and stripping mismatch into the center, uh, which essentially we own as balance sheet management. By way of example, and again, we use our example to Steve, who essentially we lend prime link cash to for 450 over five years. We essentially give him an FTP rate of prime minus two plus an appropriate liquidity premium. That translates into 9%. So don't worry about the actual amount or numbers, and, but, but essentially the FTP rate that we provide financing to this business unit to lend to Steve needs to equate and mirror the base rate that he's provided to Steve. So it's a prime linked FTP rate, prime linked to client with an appropriate liquidity premium taking into account the behavioral construct of the liquidity he's consumed. Essentially he's, being, he's charging Steve 12%, we charging him an internal FTP rate of 9%, he's locked in 3% as a business unit and he's running no mismatch risk. What happens if rates go up? Prime goes up, he charges Steve more. If Prime goes up, we charge his FTP rate goes up. So if Prime goes up 50 basis points, his margin stays at 3%. Because his, his rate to Steve is, is Prime, and his internal FTP rate is Prime, that's the only variable in his rate. So whatever happens to rate, this business unit has locked in 3%. We, on the other hand, if Prime goes up, we make more. 
prime goes down, we lose more because we've lent money to this business unit notionally through a base FTP rate that's linked to prime. On the opposing side of the balance sheet, we buy the 100,000 that uh, that business unit essentially took from, from Becky, and we buy the 350,000 that they took from Jenny, but we match again the construct of the FTP rate such that aligns to the base FTP rates that they've offered to Jenny and, and, and Becky. So essentially we've got a one month FTP rate uh, to the, to the, to the uh, business unit that's taken the deposit from Jenny at 725. Uh, we, we essentially pay, pay her 8, 845, or pay the business unit 845, and we do the same with regards to the five year fixed rate piece of risk. We provide a five year uh, FT, notional FTP rate to bar the uh, Becky deposit into again our unit. What's happened? Again, if you look at that particular business unit, they're paying Becky a five-year rate. They're receiving a five-year rate from us. So regardless of what happens to interest rates, they've secured a fixed funding spread in business. And on the one-month deposit, they again pay Jenny a one-month deposit, and we've bought the money at a one-month deposit rate, and as a result, FTP rate, and as a result, they've got a fixed funding spread. The opposing side of that is we've taken in one-month risk, and we've taken five-month risk, five-year risk, into balance sheet management, and we've got the prime link risk on the opposing side. So that, in, at the end of the day, forget all the maths, but that's what it does. It locks in funding spread in a money in business, and we've locked in credit spread on a money out business, and we've taken the risk into the center. And essentially then, we essentially, that then again is a pictorial representation of exactly what we've achieved from an interest rate risk perspective. So the green bars would represent the legs in the front-facing businesses. You can see they've got Sorry, the, 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 yeah, the yellow bars represent essentially the external legs we spoke to earlier. The green bars represent the opposing side of the FTP process I've just spoken to. So they secured credit spread funding spread. Through that process, we've stripped that risk into balance sheet management. So you can see we now sit with a five-year piece of risk, the one-month piece of risk, and the prime link loan. We've then managed or risk managed the five-year piece of risk back into the short end through trading a physical derivative with the market. So step one, secure credit and funding spread in businesses. Step two, pull the risk into balance sheet management. Step three, risk manage the position. And that's what we do from a mismatching perspective, and that's the interest rate risk lens. From a liquidity risk lens, it's exactly the same thing. Don't get hung up on all the, on all the graphs, but essentially the behavioral liquidity profile in all three trades has been stripped out moved essentially into balance sheet management, and we risk manage that position, uh, again, by deciding on the size of liquid asset portfolios. Do we think we should go into the capital markets and create some longer tenor in our funding profile by doing you know, some five, seven, and 10-year pieces of senior unsecured debt? Uh, do we think we should go and raise some cash in the foreign market, bring it back into the RAND book as a diversification piece? Um, yeah, that, so we would manage that process or risk having stripped it out and brought it back into balance sheet management. All right, so that's the second risk type. It's a lot easier to understand the concept of cash flow mismatches if you, if you buy into or understand the transformation role that we play as banks. But again, I'm gonna pause and ask if there are any questions from a liquidity risk uh, and or from an FTP perspective. So we've got a question there at the back. Hi. Uh yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for that. Um, so I'm just trying to understand. Uh, so I understand you've brought the risk centrally in as interest rate risk and liquidity risk. Um, 
but then you're also talking about credit spreads. Have you, are you converting credit risk into interest rate risk and liquidity risk? Or sorry, how does it relate to the credit risk of the deal? Yeah, sorry. So, so in terms of pricing for credit, let's, it's, not, it's not a reference to that. Rather, through the base FTP rate in our example used, we provided funding at 9% to essentially the deal to Steve. And Steve, we priced as a bank, we priced at uh, essentially prime plus two. So in deriving and pricing that deal, essentially, the business unit got a quote from us that if they want to do that deal to Steve, and it's a prime link deal, and it's a five-year contractual profile for a VAF deal, a motor vehicle finance deal, through our FTP process, including liquidity premiums, we will provide them funding for the next five years at 9%. Okay, so that goes out every day. Nine o'clock, the full, full front end of our business gets an idea of if they're lending to which type of product, what type of tenor, what they will get five-year funding for. So in that example, they'll get, they'll get funding for five years at 9%. They then, through their credit modeling processes, they score Steve, and they score him from a PD or probability of default, an EAD, an LGD, so a multitude of credit parameters, They'll score Steve and they'll, they'll add in their costs and their reserving, etc. And they'll say, if I'm going to get money from the centre at 9%, I need to price Steve at prime plus two because based on his credit risk profile, I need a credit spread in this example of 3%. So they took our 9% as a base FTP rate. They scored him. Based on the consumption of capital, based on the credit scoring of the individual, they've worked out they need a credit spread of 3%. And then they negotiated with Steve that he can borrow money at prime plus two, which gave them 12%. So by, by them securing five-year money at a fixed rate from us as the center at 9%, by signing on the dotted line with Steve and getting him to pay prime plus two, therefore charging him 12%, they've secured a 3% credit spread in their business post the FTP process. So that was my reference to, on the asset side, you often refer to as the margin secured as the credit spread, and on the deposit side of the business as the funding spread, but it's a sim similar logic. So they have no risk, and they've secured a 3% margin on Steve. That was my reference to the credit spread. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, we'll carry on. All right, the third risk type is capital risk. So again, from a capital risk perspective, I mentioned earlier this concept of unexpected losses. Again, we have a capital management framework. Uh, we structure our capital uh, across multiple tiers, um, depending on, again, your, your, your construct of your capital stack. But essentially, again, it's this concept of unexpected losses. And as I mentioned, you know, if we move on to the tail, from a distribution perspective, we can provide or we can provision or we can fair value expected loss. But again, you don't know what you don't know. And as a result, there's always this bit in the tail and you choose a confidence interval. We, we capitalize the group at 99.93 uh, or for an A minus debt rating. And essentially, um, it results in this element of unexpected loss for which you have to hold capital. The regulations then prescribe how you measure your different risk types, and therefore uh, it derives something or concept of risk-weighted assets across your organization per risk type, 
and against minimum capital requirements, then you choose how to capitalize the organization, which essentially is going to shareholders to ask for capital and the different capital, capital tiers. From a regulatory perspective, you can capitalize the group through ordinary shareholders' equity, um, through reserves, uh, and then you can move on to additional tier one, which would be uh, basically subordinated debt, um, which qualifies as additional tier one, which needs to be perpetual, no maturity date, uh, divvies or interest is non-cumulative, non-perpetual. Uh, then you can move into the total capital ratio where you can capitalize through subordinated debt that can have a maturity, does have a maturity date, but needs to be longer than five years in one day. Uh, and again, uh, there has a maturity date. Uh, it is optional after five years in one day. Um, and obviously your different uh, capital tiers come with different pricing. But uh, at the end of the day, the concept is this concept of unexpected loss. And again, I've used a simple example uh, and in this example, what I've done is I've taken two different uh, investors. We've still got Steve, who's borrowed money and exposed us to credit risk. But you've got two other investors who essentially have invested in ordinary shareholders' equity, tier one capital and tier two capital in those proportions at the top. Don't get hung up on the numbers. But you've got appetite of investors to not necessarily be depositors, but rather invest in the organization. So to the extent that you participate in the JSC, you buy script you're essentially going into the ordinary shareholders' equity of the organization plus reserves. If you choose to participate in a tier one instrument or a tier two instrument, you're essentially in the form, into, the, into a form of quasi-debt equity or into essentially a form of uh, debt, uh, and that obviously uh, derives or determines the yield or rate that you earn on that particular instrument. And it determines, very importantly, your level of subordination in terms of if the organization goes under, where you stand in line with regards to creditors, unsecured debt, subordinated debt, or whether you, you're into the, the odds of the organization. I think importantly to the question that was asked earlier, in terms of how do you measure essentially risk, which determines how much capital you need to hold as an organization. In the case of credit, you use a, a multitude of risk parameters. We spoke about an EAD, PD, LGD, and maturity tenor but you would use those sorts of attributes to measure credit risk. You use different, different attributes to measure whether it be investment risk, property risk, ALM risk, uh, operational risk, business risk, uh, market risk, et cetera. So you measure risk across the organization. From that, you essentially derive something called essentially total risk-weighted assets. And based on certain minimum requirements, you then determine how much capital you have to hold as prescribed by the regulator. You obviously hold buffers because you, you don't want to run the organization at the minimum requirements. Um, and again, that determines how much capital you need to go and ask uh, your different tiers of capital for. In this example, simple example from the previous page, we had 30,000 rands worth of ordinary shareholders' equity. There are certain deductions that come off capital. That is a requirement of the regs. We had a piece of tier, tier one of 4,500. We had a piece of tier two uh, of essentially 8,000. So this organization had 32. 1,800 rands worth of capital stacked or structured across set one, tier one, and total on that basis. We got the loan to Steve. In Steve's case, uh, he comes out at an EAD of 445,000, an LGD of 68%, which means if he goes under, we will lose 68% of the EAD because we've got some collateral in the form of the vehicle, so it's not 100%. Uh, we have a maturity factor of five. 
and a probability of default on this particular client of 15%. You do the maths and as a result you determine that in, in, in Steve's case uh, essentially the capital requirement is 18,000 or translates into a risk-weighted risk asset of 226 uh, 226,000 on an EAD or loan amount of 450,000. So that determines how you capitalize the organization, how you measure for risk, and how you determine whether you adequ adequately capitalized based on the risk that you've taken. Okay, big piece of, of capital management or capital adequacy is stress testing. The same applies to the other two risk types. We do a multitude of stress testing across the organization. We stress test for multiple macroeconomic scenarios as well as event type risks. Uh, Eskim default, land expropriation without compensation. Are we in a positive, mild, high, um, severe, severe inflation, severe deflation scenario, etc.? So we run multiple stress tests across all three risk disciplines and we measure the consequential impact on earnings, consequential impact on solvency, consequential impact on liquidity profile consequential impact on margins, etc. And we use our stress testing and facilitating the management of our organization. In closing, we're also supported by a multitude of support functions. We have a finance team. You can imagine, given the particularly the derivatives that we run, we have a multitude of financial compl complex financing solutions in the organization. We're supported by an appropriate risk governance and compliance function. Uh, we also do the full regulatory reporting of the organization, and we're obviously supported by an appropriate uh, HR team. All right, so that's us. That's balance sheet management. Those are the risk types that we manage. That's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. It sits in the middle of the organization, um, and it's something I certainly still get a kick out of doing. I enjoy it. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Mark uh, on these disciplines uh, across various industry groups, uh, but uh, essentially that's us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I think that was a very informative discussion on balance sheet management, which I think is a, always an essential aspect of running a bank, and I think it's a good thing to be reminded of the importance of this. And I think you gave a very simplistic in, meanwhile, and, and in-depth explanation of balance sheet management, which I think we all appreciate. Um, just as a gesture of appreciation, I would just like to give you a small gift for speaking to us today.